This is the Top Entrepreneurs Podcast, where founders share how they started their companies and got filthy rich or crash and burn. Each episode features revenue numbers, customer counts, and other insider information that creates business news headlines. We went from a couple of hundred thousand dollars to 2.7 million. I had no money when I started the company. It was $160 million, which is the size of many IPOs. We're bootstrapped. We have like 22,000 customers. With over 5 million downloads in a very short amount of time, major outlets like Inc. are calling us the fastest growing business show on iTunes. I'm your host, Nathan Latka, and here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. My guest today is Billy Bosworth. He is responsible for strategy growth and day-to-day operations at Datastax. He's got 20 years of experience in the database industry and roles ranging from DBA to senior executive. Before Datastax, he spent six years at Quest Software, which many of you are familiar with. Under his leadership, the industry-leading Quest database business grew from supporting traditional relational databases to a portfolio that now includes tools for the cloud and many other scenarios and situations. Prior to Quest, Billy led product teams for Embarcadero Technologies Database Productivity Solutions, and he serves as the director of Tableau Software. He holds a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from the University of Louisville. Billy, are you ready to take us to the top? I am. Thank you for that great introduction. You bet. Am, I, am I hired? <laughs> You're on. All right. You're on the team. <laughs> I'd be fired in about two seconds. I'm a horrible employee. Uh, we talked earlier, so you go from football coach to databases to now data stacks. You've raised over 190 million bucks. Take me to the story. The company was launched. You were not a founder. You said you joined when they were 20. Walk me through that story, and then let's hear about data stacks and what you do. Yeah, at uh, Quest Software, where I ran the database business, we could see that the trend of the relational model was was starting to flatten, and we saw this new class of databases start to emerge. Uh, Many of them were around this open source technology. Ours was founded in a technology called Apache Cassandra. I partnered with the company when they had just formed, and uh, I got to know them over the next 10 months, at which point they asked me to join as CEO. So I knew these guys from the day they started the company, and then I joined the company. Because you were a customer at at Quest. A partner. So what we were doing was we were an ecosystem player. So what we would do is look for the new technologies that we would build tools to then support. Okay. Now, I mean, dive into that. I mean, how did they ask you? Was this, was this an email? What was the subject line? Or was it a phone call? I mean, how'd that work? They were in Austin and I was living in Dallas. And so it was a nice, easy drive down there and uh, got to know them and the team. And as we started talking about how we might be able to help them with tooling and such, it just naturally led to conversations about the market and where are you guys going and how are you developing? And, uh, they had a technical founder and a semi-technical founder who was doing the CEO work. And it was the uh, Matt File, who was the semi-technical founder, who came and said, you know, I think I could learn all this stuff, but I'm not sure I should learn it as fast as I could, which would be best for the company. And so I think you would be a great fit if you were interested. And the were, rest is history. Were they seducing you or were you secretly seducing them? <clears throat> I think it was a mutual love affair. We, it was we a mutual seduction. We each other. It was. We really liked each other from the start. And I tell you, for a founder to give up the CEO title is, is a non-trivial event. That, that is a very, very um, mature move by, by Matt. And Matt stayed with the company for like another uh, six years. You know, he was with us for a long time, just moved on last, well, what last year. year so. What year, by the way, was so this would have been 2011 when you joined? That's correct. May of 2011. 
Okay. And, you know, without getting into too much detail here, cap table wise, how they actually structure that. I imagine they give you a big chunk. They were early. They were pre-funding, right? Were they pre-revenue? Pre-revenue, but not pre-funding. So they had just raised the Series A. I came in, my first assignment was actually to go raise the Series B, um, which was uh, tough because we were still coming out of the nuclear winter. And um, it was in 2011, still not a great fundraising environment. So we put significant effort into raising the Series B, and then the subsequent rounds got easier after that. Yep. And then total today, you've raised about $190 million. Is that accurate? That's right. Through Series E, as in Echo. Yeah. Yep. So through uh, those five rounds of funding, we've raised almost $200 million. Okay. Um, we'll jump more into that in a second, but I want to take a step back. Tell us about the product. What does Datastacks do, and what's the business model? Is it pure play SaaS, or is it pay-as-you-go based off usage? Yeah. So Datastax is a leader in data management for cloud applications, which we'll talk about have a whole different kind of scale um, and, and set of requirements for the database. Uh, the way we make money is we sell our, our flagship product, Datastax Enterprise, uh, on an annual subscription basis. And you can consume that either as a service where we have a managed service that we'll do for you, or you can consume it where you manage it and you may decide to run it in the cloud or you may decide to run it on-prem. But we have about 60 to 70% of our workloads are, are already being run uh, in the cloud, either okay. with us managing it or our customers managing it. And generally, the ACV on these, on average, are what? I mean, are we talking a 10 grand, 100 grand, a million, 10 million? Uh, closer to the 100 grand. We, we okay. service enterprises and we stay very focused on enterprise class problems and enterprise class customers. That's fair. Um, walk me through uh, the story in terms of customer acquisition. So, Many, if, if my business listeners are going, I always find it difficult to sell to the CTO. CTOs listening are going, are saying, oh, it's so easy because we, we speak the same language. Um, who are you selling to in organizations and what's your acquisition strategy? That's actually a fabulous question because it's a, it's a little bit of a uh, surprise to a lot of people. But many of our entry points inside of organizations do not start with the centralized technology teams. They actually start with a line of business. And the lines of business are the ones who are tasked with moving very fast to either gain market share or stop the erosion of market share. They have to move quickly. And so often they will come directly to us. And then eventually after two or three projects, we make our way into the centralized team. Interesting. Um, Interesting. So it's a land and expand approach. Okay. So how does that first person inside one of these lines, these teams that represent one of these lines, how do they find you? Our primary persona with whom we engage is a role called a data architect. And this is the person who's responsible for fitting together the entire data strategy of a set of applications or or a given application. And that person uh, generally knows right now, I think that among sober-minded people in the industry, there's a very good agreement that Cassandra, which is our core technology, is the de facto scalable industrial grade performance database. And so they kind of know that to begin with. And then because we are the company who essentially uh, built Cassandra, if you look at the amount of contributions we gave to open source and all the marketing we did, then it's a very natural path to us. What are you paying to acquire these data architects as a customer? What's your CAC on average, would you say? Uh, we don't reveal CAC in that manner, but I can tell you that it's a combination of a couple things. So yeah. one is the open source trail which by the way, you, you can't really draw a direct monetary line to because the whole point of open source is a lot of times it's all about um, come and get things without having a direct connection. 
Um, you know, so in other words, you don't want to be Pastor Nathan. You, you want to be an open source person. You want to be anonymous. You want to go grab the open source code. And then you find us through many things that we do on our training. Like DataStax has a site called DataStax Academy, which provides free world-class training. Mm-hmm. Many people find us through that as okay. an example. So you can't really measure the CAC directly in that way, but yeah. we also have a direct sales force who, who also goes after uh, direct enterprise accounts as well. So it's a combination of the two. Tell me about the sales force. What's your total team size today and how many are on the sales team? Uh, we have in the company north of 450 people. About half of those roughly are in uh, product and engineering and about half of those are in uh, the sales and marketing organization. We blend those two together. And then, uh, you know, some remainder of 10% or so is in uh, the GNA team. So that's our, that's our general breakdown. We, we have pretty standard model of um, enterprise sales manager. We teamed up with a SC, uh, teamed up after the fact with a customer success team. So there's a, there's a whole value chain along that whole customer journey. When I speak with CEOs that have done more or they're doing, you know, more than a hundred million in ARR, um, they typically talk about metrics a little differently than somebody at the 50 million or even 5 million range. Um, when you look at what you like to optimize your payback period for, that's maybe a better question than CAC. How quickly do you like to keep your money velocity, like coming back to you? Yeah. So it's all about how fast we can get those first projects to success. Um, to give you an idea of our size, by the way, we're, our revenues exceed hundred million in ARR. We have, uh, over 75% gross margins. So we're very much a software company. Um, we have a, a very, very clear and close line of sight to cash flow positive. So our cash is kind of in our control. What does that mean? Nice. What does that mean? Can you quantify that? What do you mean in your control or close to it? It means that we have no need to raise more money. So right. we, we have a complete uh, control over our future in terms of whatever we want to do next in terms of timing, whether that's, I always get asked, you're going to ask me at some point, are you going public? When are you going public? Wait, Billy, come we, on, let me do it. Billy, yeah. I have a big question for you. When <laughs> are you filing, when are you filing to go public? Shocking. I've never heard that one. Uh, and I'm sure you've never heard the answer. We don't talk about those kind of things. We don't reveal those futures. But what I can tell you is, uh, because our cash is in our control, then that that creates a ton of optionality for us. We don't have to worry about racing the markets to get yeah. money. Um, but what that does mean is we're, we're also very efficient in the way that we look at our unit economics or, around our accounts. And so for us, this is partly why we focus so much on enterprise. Number one, the use cases lend themselves much better to our technology in big, hairy problems in enterprises. But number two, the unit economics are infinitely better than SMB. So we stay very focused on uh, getting that land very efficiently, but then making sure very quickly, how fast can we make that first project successful? What we find is once that first project is successful, the expansions happen much, much faster. Now, the, the inverse of that is true as well. If we don't get that first project right, it can really retard the progress on on expansion because it's still new, Nathan. A lot of these technologies are still new. There's a lot of eyeballs in the company, in the customer company, that are waiting to look at that first project to say, should we double down on that or should we stay away a little longer? Many of you know I am buying companies that I really, really like, and there's no quicker way for me to get to the bottom of what is happening on that website than using this tool called NathanLaka.com forward slash hot jar, H-O-T-J-A-R. It basically will give me a recording, okay? When anybody lands on the website, it'll give me a recording of where the viewer is scrolling and obviously does the basic stuff like heat maps too, but I learn so much about where the users are scrolling and 
clicking on my site. Using that tool, it helps me increase conversion rates, make more money, and grow those businesses faster. And we'll have to see what happens with those businesses, but I'm buying them. I'm buying them very quick, and I'm using nathanlaka.com forward slash hotjar for all of my website analytics. You can too. I work with them. It's totally free. You can go to nathanlatka.com forward slash hotjar. No credit card required. Again, use it as much as you want. nathanlatka.com forward slash hotjar. I'll see you there. Sub 12, 12 months in terms of payback. Is that fair? Uh, well, it depends on the payback model you're using because again, once well, tell we me what you use. Um, we look at how fast we expand and what the expansion rate is inside the account. And so what we want to see is expansion rates, net expansion rates over 110%. That's kind of the Annually. industry standard. Yeah. So what we want to say is, okay, if we're doing well, if we're efficiently growing inside of our enterprise accounts, we should see net expansion rates, which includes churn and then also expansion, over 110%. And we see uh, well beyond that at the moment with our enterprise class accounts. Okay. And you obviously just did that kind of all together as a, at the company level at your individual customer, hundred grand first year ACV level. What do you know you have to drive expansion level to, or what can you accurately predict ACV is going to grow to in year two? Is it, you know, net, you know, one twenty, one twenty 20% growth or something different? It depends again on the nuance of what project they're implementing. So as an example, sometimes customers will start, we have two very large buckets of use cases. Uh, one bucket is around customer experience. So this is a set of use cases like customer 360, recommendation engines, fraud detection, recomm- um, personalization. Um, many times what they'll do is they'll start very granular with one of those projects. And that expansion might take a couple of years to, to really get that first project off the ground, get it solid, and then move on to the next one. Another class of applications we have is around enterprise optimization. These are things like supply chain, inventory management, asset management, security access, all those things internal to the company. Um, Those tend to happen much quicker. So that project could be a big project initially with a very rapid expansion. So I see what you're trying to ask me, but unfortunately, it really does kind of blend into the overall company metric because there's too much bespoke activity per account, yeah. depending on what project they're trying to take yeah, look, on. What you're telling me is what most CEOs at this level tell me, which is Nathan, we're a mature company. We really have a good handle on individual cohorts and every cohort performs economically different. Uh, and we tweak those cohorts to make them work depending on, you know, speed of onboarding and things like that. Yeah. Then they blend together. I, I will tell you there's an emerging category that, uh, is, is more important than I would have imagined five years ago. And that is the role of the customer success team is part of that expansion and part of making our customers successful. Um, I used to think, you know, six, seven years ago, customer success was just a, a nice title for services. Yeah. And it's, it's not, you know, Nathan, it, it is a real discipline that is new and has changed and is evolving very rapidly. And so we have invested very heavily in our customer success organization and and will continue to do so. Um, You keep talking about the initial project being successful. Um, Is there a professional services component uh, upfront for these folks to get them onboarded or is it just a pure place ass model? No, there is a professional services model. You know, one of the advantages of my background, which fortunately you made me five years younger than I am. I've actually been 25 years, believe it or not, in the industry. I'm Um, trying to help you, Billy. You know, we help each other, you know? Yeah, it makes me feel good. But one of the challenges is uh, I lived through the mainframe to client server transition. So when I came out of school, uh, Oracle was still considered largely a potential toy kind of off to the side. 
So I chose my career path on that direction. But what people forget is how long that transition took in the market mm-hmm. from mainframe to client server. Therefore, what you, what you require is some initial handholding with your customers because they're still thinking on old relational paradigms. And when I say relational, that's Oracle, SQL Server, Sybase, those kind of things. And you got to get them transitioned into this new way of thinking in these distributed databases. Um, that's a people issue. You know, even if it's a SaaS product, even if we're managing the ops side, I still have to work with you to help you understand how to how to do this new world. So services is, is a very critical part of what we do. And now what are you at today in terms of the total customers you're serving? Our total uh, customer count, I believe, is around 500, but I'll have to give you that more specifically. But I think it's uh, just shy of 500. He's squinting looking at the data. Squinting, trying to remember. I do know this. We have them in over 50 countries. So (laughs) we have a lot of of good geographical distribution right now. The math I was doing, Billy, was take your 100 million ARR divided by 12, puts you at about 8.3 million in MRRs. I don't know. You're probably well north of that. But then your ARPU in terms of your, your, your ACV, first year is a hundred grand, which is about 8,300 bucks a month. So you need about a thousand customers at that ACV to hit over a hundred million in ARR. Now, are you, I won't make you put a, a really specific cap on this, but generally, I mean, can we say between a hundred and 200 million in ARR or are you like well north of 200? Yeah, no, between a hundred and 200. That's million. fair. Okay. Yeah. Okay, good. And obviously it's harder to grow large numbers over the past year. What was your growth rate? What'd you grow at? Yeah, we continue to have our models, even even our three-year business model, we're projecting uh, still being in a hyper-growth category, which generally people at our size would define as 40% or higher. Okay. And so e- even as we look out the next three years, we believe we can stay in that hyper-growth category. Okay. Yeah, I mean, so, so just to be clear, did you hit that or beat that over the past 12 months? Yeah, our growth rates have been really strong uh, okay. ever since I got here. That's, that's great. Okay, good. Um, a lot of people, we touched on this earlier, will look at a company that has raised as much as, as you have and said, you know what, if they don't keep raising year after year, it means one of two things. They're not growing as fast and they can't raise capital at the valuation they want and they don't want to do a down on because it looks bad or they're not strong enough to IPO. Um, you've countered that and said, no, we're just, we just have control of our cash. We don't need to raise. That being said, early investors, yourself included on the cap table, especially common holders, start to get maybe antsy at some point and they want some kind of return. Was any of the capital that's gone in the company uh, secondary or was it all going directly to operations? Uh, that was almost all going to operations. There, there was some very, very minor rounding error type of uh, secondaries early on, but uh, that goes all to operations. And, and I have to tell you, maybe this is one of the differences where um, you are talking to an old football guy, you're talking to a guy from a steel town outside of Pittsburgh. I didn't come from the Valley and I'm not, and I'm not a Valley person in that respect. And what I mean by that is I, I still believe in, in really good fiscal management of an organization, because I think when markets turn and they will, and you know, they will, you know, what's going to happen. As soon as that happens, everybody is going to get cash crazy. And they're going to start asking you, do you have control of your cash? And so I'm thrilled with the bull market we've been experiencing. I'm thrilled with the access to capital we've had. We've we've leveraged it. We've taken advantage of it. But I'm sorry, I'm not going to get silly with it. 
I'm, I'm not going to treat it like it's uh, free water because it's not. What and I so- mean, Billy, though, is like a guy like John, right, Vrionis, back in, what would that have been, 2010 maybe, your seed round? I think you were there, or no, you were in charge of the B round. So I guess they just raised yeah. the A round from from Calciana, Sequoia, and and John. But, you know, 2.7 million, those guys at some point, you know, we're approaching 10 years on that money going, and at some point they start to get antsy. They're never going to pressure you because you're growing and it's a success. But if Lightspeed wants to go raise their next fund or Sequoia or Jason or whatever, it's nice to be able to point to you guys as a case study where they've gotten money back somehow. Have you figured out a way to create liquidity for early shareholders by replacing them by new investors so you can keep the, you know, their story a good one? Yeah, we, great question. We, we've been very blessed in this regard. Um, that anxiety that you mentioned is also directly tied to the success of the funds that you're already in. And in our early investors, their funds are performing extraordinarily well. And so we don't have that pressure from them. They are not on my back saying like, geez, when are we going to get this thing going? Because they look at the health of the company. They see that it's on the right trajectory. They see that we're growing well at a material number. They see we have optionality ahead of us. And they don't want to rush it and do something silly now that you've gotten to this point. And that's really nice when you have investors that have had success in their funds that they don't feel that pressure necessarily, I think, as much from maybe their LPs because mm-hmm. their funds are performing so well. So we've got a we've got a really high class uh, lot of investors. And um, the truth is, I, I do not feel that pressure from them. Last set of questions on this topic before we wrap up with the famous five. I understand the argument you make about investors, but you also have you know, early employees who you used equity as leverage to get them to join, take, you know, lower salaries as you recruit them from Rackspace or other companies. At some point they're going, I'd like a return. I don't think Billy's going to IPO because they just raised 109 million. That basically was an IPO in terms of cash. And they're wondering, when am I ever going to actually have these things be worth anything? When I can get, when can I get liquidity? If those questions come up and maybe they don't get asked, but they're being thought, how do you address them? Oh, we know they're being thought. I mean, everybody's human. Everybody's thinking that way. And so what we do about that is I'm I'm pretty much a freak on communication and transparency inside the company. I was very nervous and what you were so, gonna say there for a second. A yeah. freak on <laughs> you have to you have to really be maniacal about communicating the vision and communicating the company's progress. And if you don't do that, then you do have employees who are very nervous about the future and is this did I make the right bet? Am I in the right company? And uh, so it's up to me, really, to make sure that that communication of our vision is being prosecuted effectively. People understand the progress we're making, and they know they've made a good bet, and then they're willing to be patient. If they ever feel like things are too ambiguous or vague or they don't see where we're going, that's where you're going to get people that are going to get squirrely. But we try very hard to be very clear, transparent, and open with our company. Are you in the process right now of making any big acquisitions? No, we have done two though, which I think for a company our size is is uh, good because I think you should build that DNA early. Uh, we acquired a graph company and we acquired a cloud company, a, a managed service company. And um, those have been really good learnings for us. And I think that develops that muscle because I am a believer in as you grow, uh, I am always looking for the, the right fit for things to fall in. Now at our size, it's usually not in a... Um, it's usually not an incremental revenue type of acquisition. It's more about a portfolio acquisition. You know, do you need to fill some gaps that you could do faster through acquisition? So we're always on the lookout, but I don't have any in progress. And if Bezos brings a billion five check to your board, do you sell the company or no? Yeah, like I'm going to answer that, Nathan. <laughs> I'm reading we, your we, smile. It tells me it tells me everything <laughs> I need to know, Billy. 
<laughs> yeah, we take we we always are prepared, like I told you, for any eventual outcome. But here's what I believe: I believe that that old cliche is actually very accurate. That great companies are never sold; they're bought. And as long as we take care of our business and stay focused, then we'll look at every option we have to make sure that we're growing the company effectively to service our customers. And right now. We don't have to worry about external parties to make that happen. All right, famous five, one word answers here. Favorite business book? The Advantage. Number two, is there a CEO you're following or studying right now? Brad Smith at Intuit. Number three, what's your favorite online tool besides your own for growing the business? Uh, Slack. Number four, how many hours of sleep do you get every night? Six. Okay, and what's your situation? Married, single, do you have kids? 25 years, married. I thought you were going to say 25 kids. <laughs> <laughs> 25 years married, three kids. Three kids and Billy, how old are you? 48. Last question. What do you wish your 20-year-old self knew? Don't be so arrogant and obnoxious and go learn from your betters. <laughs> I don't think, you, did you guys think he was arrogant? Billy, I thought you were great. You were a trooper. He came on, you were super transparent. Launched the company back in 2011 with two co-founders between Austin and Dallas. They were, it was a mutual seduction. That's what we'll call it, a mutual, mutual seduction. Billy ended up joining uh, as part of the company. First round of business, getting the Series B closed. They, since, they have since raised 190 million bucks, helping over 500, 600-ish customers really understand their data. The company is on a tear, growing 40% year over year, north of 100 million bucks in ARR right now, but south of 200. Million, about 110% net revenue expansion annually. So the economics look healthy. Billy, thank you for taking us to the top. Thank you, Nathan. Have a great day.